What's the easiest choice you can make? Window instead of middle seat? Picking a vendor who sends a great gift basket? Outsourcing business tasks you hate? What about selling with Shopify? Whether you're selling a little or a lot, Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage, all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits, Shopify helps you sell. Wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash try. Go to shopify.com slash try now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash try. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome to That Said. I am Michael Zeldin. On today's special St. Patrick's Day edition, we will be speaking with Sammy Katz about her fun new book, Cocktails in Color, a spirited guide to the art and joy of drink making that celebrates the craft of cocktail design from raw ingredients to finished delightful refreshments. Sammy Katz, welcome to That Said. Thanks. Thanks for having me, Michael. Good to be here. So I always start these interviews with the same question. Tell us about yourself. Tell us how you came to be who you are and how you came to write this book. Yeah, uh, so I am a writer and bartender uh, based out of New York City, born and bred. I started bartending as like a side hustle um, when I was trying to be an actor right out of college in New York. Really fell into it, really loved it, discovered that it was also a creative outlet for me rather than just slinging beers and vodka sodas, I actually got to be inventive. And so I kind of fell in love with it in that way. And I was always writing, uh, as a lot of actors do, you have to write your own work. So I was kind of always cooking up something. And I left bartending for a little bit to kind of focus on acting, but I wanted to keep uh, a foot in the world somehow. And so I got an idea to start a blog called A Girl's Guide to Drinking Alone where I would go out and review bars for how great or terrible they were for women to go to by themselves. So it was a way for me to kind of keep being in the cocktail world, keeping in the bar sphere while also writing about it. So that's kind of how I started in the niche world of, of drinks writing to begin with. I met my creative partner, Olivia McGiff. We just came out with a cocktail book called Cocktails in Color. She and I met in college doing theater together. So it kind of all comes back to theater. Um, we did a lot of collaborative theater, a lot of kind of weird, funky, experimental theater. So we learned how to work together and collaborate in a lot of fun ways on low budgets, with weird stuff, you know. And um, neither of us continued acting or in theater at all. She was starting her career as an illustrator. And she would come 
visit me at my bars and would sketch some of my cocktails on receipt paper. And, you know, we stayed friends, we would make drinks together, we would cook together. Uh, and so this book and our work that we do is kind of a way for us to just continue collaborating. We loved working together so much in school, making theater. So we wanted to find another way. And this kind of came out organically. So we started working on Cocktails in Color, gosh, about 2018. Um, and it was just published last month. So things take time. <laughs> yeah. You write in the introduction to the book, it says, this book celebrates the craft and joy of drink making from understanding the ingredients that comprise cocktails to shaking up and enjoying the delectable finished libations. With this book, we want to share our love of drinks and demystify the universe of cocktails to make it accessible. So that's pretty good since I don't know anything about cocktails. I don't drink them much. Maybe you can tell us a bit about cocktails. I've always wondered how they got that name, but is there a history that your readers should know about? Yeah, I mean, cocktail history is enormous. I am by no means a cocktail historian. There are actually people who call themselves that and have written wonderful books about the histories of cocktails um, that you can go look up and find more. But something that I love about cocktail history is that it was all made in bars. <laughs> so nobody's a reliable narrator because, you know, it was all recorded by drunks. So there are a lot of theories, a lot of stories uh, for each thing, which kind of just makes it fun. And there's so much like lore around some things in, in cocktail history. So there are a lot of theories to where the word cocktail comes from. One theory is that it was actually a mispronunciation of a French word, uh, coctier, which means egg cup. That's not as that fun to me. <laughs> um, my favorite theory, which again, nobody knows which is actually true. So I'm going to say it's this one, is that a woman during the uh, American Revolution actually garnished alcoholic drinks in a bar with feathers from um, the tails of chickens. So they called those cocktails because there was a chicken feather in the alcoholic ones. Again, don't know if it's true, but I love it. <laughs> So I'll stick with the feather in the drink. It makes sense. It's fun, can, right? Yeah. Yeah, it's fun. And you could use the feather to write a letter or have a drink, you know. They're very purpose garnish. Yeah. So again, in this description of the book, which has a great subtitle, it's Cocktails in Color, A Spirited Guide to the Art and Joy of Drink Making. You write, again in the introduction, whether you're a seasoned vet behind the bar or just bought your first Shaker tins, cocktails and colors will show you how to put a personal twist on both classic and original recipes. So I want to turn to the spirits, the way the book is broken down. You have your spirits chapters, and then you turn to classic cocktails, and you have original cocktails, and then all the stuff that you need to know to have your own bar. So why don't we start with two or three of them, maybe three, maybe gin Vodka, tequila, those are the mm -hmm. ones that I have some familiarity with from let's my do it. So <laughs> let's start with gin. What is it? Yeah, um, gin is a distilled spirit uh, defined by its addition of juniper. So it's a neutral spirit that's been infused with botanicals, herbs, uh, but it has to have juniper in it. That's what makes it a gin. Gin, it started 
you know, in Europe, very English. Uh, the Dutch actually first made a kind of malted spirit and they called it Jennifer. So some people think that that's where the word gin comes from is a shortened version of the word Jennifer or Geneva. And there are a lot of different kinds of gin. Gin's one of my favorite spirits. I think it is so versatile in cocktails because you can distill it with whatever you want as long as there's juniper in it. So each gin kind of takes on the characteristics of the botanicals that are in it. So uh, London Dry is going to be your most kind of classic gin, what you think of when you think of gin, really. It's citrusy, it's juniper forward, Tanqueray, Beefeater, Bombay Sapphire. Those are all kind of very traditional style of London uh, London Dry gins. Jennifer, as I mentioned, is kind of like a malted uh, gin. It's a little bit old, more old school. It's got a little bit kind of sweetness to it. There's Old Tom Gin, which is a pretty old school, not just because it was old in the name, but it's a little a little older style that's had a resurgence uh, in the last maybe 10 years or so by nerdy bartenders who read about it and wanted to try it just means that there's a little bit of more sugar added to it. So it's not malted in the same way that Jennifer is, but it's got a little bit more body and richness. And then um, there's kind of what I call like wild card gins. That's just my name for it. There's not like a technical term. <laughs> so don't go asking for a wild card gin because that doesn't make any sense to anybody else. But it's kind of the ones that highlight other botanicals. So Hendrix, which is made with cucumber and rose is a uh, wild card gin. Um, so I think where it's it's where gin really gets fun because you can see where the distillers' inspirations come from and have fun kind of like pairing different flavors with these gins to match the botanicals that it's been made with. And in fact, uh, to that end, we know from reading that uh, Queen Elizabeth was a Dubonnet and gin drinker. Of so, course, she was. <laughs> So, I feel like it would have been sacrilegious if she didn't drink gin. <laughs> right. And then, of course, there are the gin martini drinkers versus the vodka martini. Mm -hmm. We'll talk about that martini when we get to the, to the classics. And there are lots of people who are well-known for their drinking of gin martinis. Mm -hmm. So the next is vodka. Tell us about yeah. that. I want you to dispel misconception that I have, which is I was always <laughs> told as a a person with celiac, that I could have vodka because it was derived from corn or potatoes mm -hmm. or something and therefore not glutinous, but you say otherwise, yes? Well, yeah, vodka is a neutral grain spirit. So similar to gin, which is also a neutral grain spirit, uh, one could argue that gin is just a flavored vodka because it has to have juniper in it, but don't tell anyone I said that. Vodka can be made from anything that's fermentable. So that's wheat, potatoes, rye, fruit, corn, right? Vodka is a, is a really a blank canvas. It doesn't have a lot of its own flavor characteristics in the way that gin does because you're not adding anything to it except for those flavored vodkas, which I tend to steer away from just because they are pretty artificial tasting. But in regards to the gluten, Tito's is truly, they gave a true masterclass in, in marketing because making uh, vodka from corn, calling it gluten-free, exploded into this, this market of gluten-free alcohols. Yes, you can, of course, make vodka from corn. Corn doesn't have any gluten in it. That is true. And also, <laughs> um, any distillation process theoretically should strip a spirit of its gluten. 
Um, so by the time it's gone through the still, it's already done. It all spirit should be gluten free. That being said, of course, if you like feel better, if you drink certain certain things as opposed to other ones, uh, I am not a doctor. Who am I to say what you should be drinking? But Tito's did a really good job convincing everyone that they had the only gluten free <laughs> spirit, which is not necessarily true. There are other spirits that are made also from things that don't have any gluten in it that are also gluten free. So, you know. All right. Well, so I can drink it at my own risk, if you will. Exactly. Which I guess it should go without saying you should drink all alcohol at your own risk. (laughs) So you wrote to me about vodka that was interesting to me. You said the key to vodka seems to be the other ingredients. Vodka soaks up flavor like tofu, Mm -hmm. which I didn't ever think of tofu and vodka, but I, but the point (laughs) is well taken. So Talk about it for those who want to be vodka drinkers. What should they be thinking about? Yeah, I mean, vodka in a similar way as tofu, I think, is kind of a blank canvas that you can just add whatever flavors you want to it. It's why it is one of the most popular spirits in the world, because you can drink it and use it in so many ways. I love putting really bright fruit flavors with it. I think because vodka doesn't have a strong personality in and of itself, it's able to let a lot of other flavors shine. So it's why the Cosmo is so good, right? Because you get cranberry and lime and orange and the vodka is just there providing a base for it. Moscow mules are delicious, like ginger and lime and soda. Like what's not to like, you know? Um, and, and Oprah drinks them. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right? If Oprah drinks it, I think if, if it's one of her favorite things, what's, what's really not to like? Exactly. Go on, go on, though. Yeah. So I just think it's maybe one of the easier spirits to pair with because it's not bringing in its own characteristic. You can really kind of do whatever you want with it. And what is Aquavit? Aquavit is a Scandinavian spirit uh, that's also a neutral grain spirit, but it has then stuff added to it, except not juniper, so it's not a gin. Usually the stuff that's added to it, the botanicals that are added to it, are things like caraway, dill, anise, fennel. Um, so it gives it that kind of like savory, licorice thing. It's very Scandinavian. <laughs> so, so it's so interesting to me because, you know, when I drink vodka or something, I don't pay any attention to the different types of taste. You mm-hmm. know, when I wine, they say, oh, it's oaky or fruity or this or that. And I can never taste that either. I just right. know if I like it, I don't like it. That's it. Yeah, I would say that's the best, that's the best way to go about tasting things. Do I like it? Do I not like it? But if you put up five bottles of vodka or five bottles of gin that are different sort of parts to it, they have very distinct tastes? I would say gin more than vodka. Uh, Vodka lovers will probably say that I'm an idiot for saying that, Um, but I can't tell the difference between a vodka made from wheat versus one that's made from potato necessarily. They don't, even though they do have different, they're made from different things. I don't really discern a whole lot of flavor versus a gin that's super piney, like really leads into the juniper flavor versus one that is more floral and had a lot of flowers made used in the distillation. That's going to taste really different, but just different, different palates, you know? So vodka, if you think of it then is what do you want mixed into it? That'll be whether you want it to be, you know, your orange juice or or something else. That's going to be the predominant 
taste. Now let's turn to tequila. Tell us about it. I love tequila so much. So switching to tequila and mezcal, they're spirits made from the agave plant. So can only be made in Mexico. Agaves are a really kind of special earthy plant. So that's why I think tequila gives that kind of like grassy, earthy notes to it. Tequila made in Jalisco in Mexico. You can get uh, Blanco, which is unaged, uh, Reposado, which is aged like two to 12 months, Anaviejo, which is aged one to three years, all aged in like oak. So it gives it that kind of like oaky stuff. Blanco is what's used mostly in, in cocktails, right? And like your margaritas and your kind of refreshing tequila drinks of summer. And tequila can only be made from one kind of agave, only from the, the Blue Weber agave versus mezcal can be made from a variety of of agave and a lot of them are wild uh so it takes them a really really long time to grow which is kind of why mezcal is a little bit more not these not these days but a little bit more rare than tequila because the agave is just more rare typically mezcal only be made in oaxaca in mexico and it's smoked underground um so that's kind of what gives it the that like really smoky earthy flavor that's commonly associated with mezcal so it's interesting because I was out on vacation not too long ago in Santa Fe, and we mm-hmm. were at a lovely little hotel, and they had a tequila bar. They must mm-hmm. have had a hundred different tequilas yeah. uh, with a million different price points, and we got to be friendly with the – it was a small hotel, so we got to be friendly with the, the owner and the bartender and stuff, and he'd say, well, taste this one. And they tasted like cognac. It mm. was it was unbelievable. I yeah. Never, I never, you know, I thought of tequila as something you you know have a margarita with, or you take a shot of and squeeze a lime <laughs> or lick salt or something like that. But right. These, these were unbelievable. I mean, they really were cognac like. So talk a little bit about that because I, I don't know how many people realize that. Tequila can be price pointed as high as some of the most exclusive cognacs in the world. Oh, yeah, because uh, I mean, tequila and mezcal are like are absolutely beautiful spirits, but the ones that you're describing definitely were aged. And so the more it's aged, the more you're waiting for it to come out of the barrel, the more special, aka pricey it can be. And tequila is, you know, one of the biggest industries in, in Mexico. They've been they've been doing it forever. And now there's also much more of uh, an interest globally in tequila and mezcal. So there's more pressure on the industry to produce this much stuff. But there are so many, so many wonderful tequila and mezcal varieties. And because uh, you have these kind of three different aging styles, four technically, there's one that's called extra añejo, which is just means it's been aged at least three years. It's kind of considered a like ultra premium category. They're just delicious. They get that like really kind of caramelly, oaky, sugary, like vanilla, the stuff that you find in a whiskey or a cognac, like the traditional aged spirits that a lot of us are used to, you know, so it's going to give it those flavors, which I love. It's so good. So as we speak, I am sitting in a hotel in Las Vegas. And so the next thing I want to talk to you about was whiskey because Mm -hmm. I close my eyes and I see... Frank Sinatra with his Jack Daniels, <laughs> or Dean Martin, Brad Pack stars. Yeah. 
with the classic um, Jack Daniels in a glass. So talk about whiskey, because whiskey is scotch, bourbon, rye. That's the broad category of what is a whiskey. Those are some broad categories. Yeah, whis- so whiskey itself is a really big umbrella, right? What is a whiskey? It has to be distilled from grain, and it has to be aged in oak barrels. That's it. Um, those are the two things that you need in order to be a whiskey. The ones that we're really most used to in America, I'd say, are bourbon, rye, and scotch, kind of the three that you had said. Bourbon, America invention. Uh, it's got to be from 51% corn, at least. It's typically sweet because of that. Often made in Kentucky. It doesn't have to be anymore, um, but a lot of delicious bourbons still come out of Kentucky. They're doing a great job. Rye whiskey has to be at least 51% rye grain, tends to be a little bit spicier, a little sharper. And then scotch, which is made in Scotland, tends to be smoky. You know, if you've ever heard the word peat, uh, peat smoke is really common in a lot of scotches. And there are two varieties typically. It's blended scotches and then single malts. Single malts are typically made from 100% malted barley. Those are the ones that, you know, you see, maybe your grandpa loved to sip. Used in cocktails a little bit, but they tend to be on the pricier side. So cocktails with scotch go more for blended, just at a better price point. But yeah, whiskey can be made all over the world. So Irish whiskey, Canadian whiskey, Japanese whiskey. Jack Daniels, as you mentioned, is American, but it is made in Tennessee. It's what's called a Tennessee sour match. My grandmother actually drank a lot of Jack Daniels. So that's what I think when I think of Jack and yeah, there's a new category of American whiskey that's coming out that's called American single malt, which is kind of exactly like it sounds. It's, it's a, an American whiskey made from a single grain, kind of just a new, a new version of whiskey that's on the rise. So yeah, huge category, really broad category. And yeah, if you're a whiskey drinker, you pretty much know, know what you like. <laughs> well, you know, I, I keep referring to different people who had different drinks and at one point in my life, I said, well, I want to emulate Frank Sinatra. And so pretty celiac, I would try to drink Jack Daniels, which really I couldn't drink. Didn't do for you. <laughs> and then, right. And then you watch Casablanca and you see Humphrey Bogart with his bottle of bourbon in the background. and think, well, that, if it's good enough for Humphrey Bogart in Casablanca, then that must be my drink. Absolutely. Too. Yeah. <laughs> Until it burned my throat. And I... <laughs> It had to go back to drinking something that was less uh, strong. Yeah, that's fair. I I do love a good bourbon. It's one of one of my favorites. Also, gin gin and whiskey are are kind of the two spirits I tend to gravitate toward. But I spread the love. I like having a, a lot of different cocktails. Mm. So turning to cocktails, there are in your book categories that you call classic. So tell us about. The classics, what is it that makes them classic? Is it, are there stories behind the classics, how they came to be? I mean, you could think of yeah. the Western movies where the guy, you know, saddles up to the bar and says, whiskey, and it's mm-hmm. in a shot glass, and they drink it back in one fell swoop and then shoot somebody that doesn't deserve to be shot, and then the movie ends. So Yeah, but, that's it. You just described every Western ever made. <laughs> <laughs> But you have a whole section on classic cocktails. So start us with something about what is the classic cocktail? How do they come to be classics? Yeah, Classic cocktails are what are referred to cocktails that have been around for a really long time. Cocktails are an inherently American invention. I mean, the idea of of drinking something like that was maybe 
English brought over, you know, the American Revolution. But the fact that cocktails and drinking mixed drinks, the way we think of a cocktail is the way it is, is, is American. Like that it's drinking cocktails is like a pillar of drinking culture is something that kind of happened uh, with and after the American Revolution. The original cocktail, what was just called a cocktail, was a combination of booze, sugar, water, and bitters. Now, for anybody who maybe identified those four things and are like, oh, that sounds like an old-fashioned, that's that's what it is. An old-fashioned was the original cocktail, and it was it started out under that name cocktail in the beginning of the 19th century, right? But as drinks continue to evolve, you couldn't just walk into a bar and ask for a cocktail anymore because then there were other cocktails that kept happening. People started making stuff. So then you would have to ask for an old-fashioned cocktail, which then got shortened to an old-fashioned, which is how we know it today. So I think that's pretty interesting is like the original cocktail is an old-fashioned and the fact that we are still drinking them now and that people have so many different ways of drinking it and people have fights about how they drink old-fashioned it's like I think that's pretty cool that it started in bars at the start of America essentially and we still are drinking them today and now we know the origin of fights in bars as uh... I mean yeah I would think so right (laughs) I think they had more things to worry about than if they were putting a cherry or not Hopefully. Hopefully. We have it pretty easy these days if that's what we're fighting for. Exactly. But you talk about cocktail templates, which Mm -hmm. is sort of like foundational to a broader spectrum of cocktails. What would be a template? What does the word template mean in that sentence? Yeah. um, So cocktails are recipes, right? Recipe in this word I consider a template because a lot of them just follow the same formula with different ingredients. So a lot of cocktails are just versions of a classic with different stuff in it. I think a lot of people consider cocktails, fancy cocktails, what we think if you go to a bar and there's, you know, a guy whipping up something and it's like magic, right? It's like, they're kind of like six basic cocktails that you need to know. And then you can make every other drink, which is funny when you break it down, that it's actually kind of easy. If you think about like the mother sauces in French cooking. Um, it's like, if once you know those, you can make anything else very similar with, with cocktails. So it's kind of a template is like the structure of a cocktail that once you learn that, you can kind of make anything else. So there are two categories, predominant categories, shaken cocktails and stirred cocktails. Shaken cocktails, you want to shake a cocktail uh, that has ingredients like citrus, fruit juice, eggs, dairy, ingredients that give a lot of texture, have a lot of texture in them that need to be emulsified and integrated into the drink in order to like really blend together. You know, when you like the bartender shakes a cocktail for you and sets it down and has that like really nice foam on the top of it, that's air bubbles. That's like bringing air, bringing texture into a cocktail to give it that like frothy, frothy thing going on. Yes, we saw Tom Cruise do that in the movie oh, Cocktail, right? <laughs> Yeah, I haven't seen that in a long time, so I haven't, I can't critique his technique, but. (laughs) You'll get back to us on a follow-on podcast and tell us about his wrist action. Absolutely, yeah, I will just fully, fully break down Tom Cruise's uh, taking technique. Um, So stirred? Yeah, stirred is the opposite. You want to avoid making any air bubbles because you want the texture of a cocktail that's stirred to be really silky, really smooth. 
Zeus can stir drinks that have ingredients like liquor, liqueurs, sweeteners, bitters, anything that's transparent that doesn't need to be like totally agitated and rattled up in a shaker in order to get integrated into the into the cocktail as a whole. It's just like gently coaxed together in a mixing glass with ice. And you want to chill and dilute cocktails. That's the point of doing either of these methods. So they both do that. It's just a matter of what kind of texture do you want it to have. So why did James Bond want shaken, not stirred in his martini? I have a bone to pick with Ian Fleming for that one because it just sounds cool. There's literally no reason to sh- I and this is one of my like my my cocktail hot takes, I guess if you will. I'm like, don't don't shake a don't shake a martini. All it is is transparent ingredients. It's just gonna be your vodka, your gin, and your vermouth. Why would you shake it? Why? Why? You don't need to. Just stir it. I don't know. I don't know. James Bond just gets to do his own thing, right? He's James Bond. <laughs> I guess so. But when I read the book and I heard you say just now, too, that stirred is just sort of like the clear drinks thing. Well, that's what a martini is. It's just yeah. vodka or gin. And yep. you just take your vodka and you pour a little vermouth into it or your gin and you pour a little vermouth into it. And then you mm-hmm. decide whether you want it uh, with a twist or on ice or with yeah. olives. And that's that. So yep. I don't I didn't get it. You know, the shaken, not stirred thing I, is really a, a huh, one of the banes of my existence as a bartender. <laughs> Do you get a lot of people saying to you, I'd like a martini and shaken because James Bond said it was to be shaken? None of them actually admit that it's because of James Bond, but I can only imagine that it is. Mm. So, I don't know. So, tell us about three cocktails that we need to know about Mm -hmm. and three that we should know about, but we probably don't. Sure. Yeah. I mean, we already talked about one, the old-fashioned. I think because it's the OG, it's important to know about it. A lot of then other drinks are kind of old-fashioned riffs, right? So can make an old fashioned a lot of different ways. I personally like mine with bourbon because I'm a bourbon gal, uh, some brown sugar syrup uh, and some bitters with some citrus zest in it, stirred up over a big ice cube. Beautiful. I think that's a perfect, perfect drink. Is the can big fight, ice can cube fight you later. <laughs> is, is the big ice cube a must as opposed to littler ice cubes? Is there, in your view, does it, does the big ice cube make a big difference? In my view, it does. Uh, a big ice cube, not only does it like look sexier than just a bunch of like small cubes, it's it dilutes a lot slower. So your drink is going to not be as watery as fast. I'm a pretty slow drinker. I take my time. And for me, it just it means that the bottom of the drink isn't just like a watery mess because all your small ice cubes have melted faster than I can drink it. And a bigger ice cube takes time. So the drink evolves as you drink it which I really like, but okay, so, you, know, you can drink an old fashioned over, over any ice really, you know? Okay. So drink number one that we should know is old fashioned. What's number two and what's number three. Yeah. I might be cheating a little bit, but number two is like, I would say both the martini and the Manhattan pretty much because they have very similar recipes just with different ingredients. A martini is gin or vodka. I'm more of a gin girl, uh, dry vermouth, maybe sometimes orange bitters stirred, usually served up, which just means that it's not over ice. And then Manhattan's basically the same thing, but with whiskey and sweet vermouth instead of gin and dry. So it also has Angostura bitters in it as well. 
but they're very similar because they're like the the spirit and the vermouth share the spotlight in a way with like the old fashioned it's not doing that right it's just about your whiskey with an old fashioned and the sugar and the bitters are there to make it shine versus a martini manhattan they're working together they're co-stars you know making each other look good <laughs> so is that two or is that two and three or do we you have uh, one third well, a third, and this is my personal preference, even though I would say that you'd probably be good just with those three. I love a Negroni, um, which is uh, gin, sweet vermouth, and Campari, uh, which is an Italian bitter liqueur. This kind of just brings in a category of bitter cocktails, which, you know, Italians have been doing forever. Uh, but maybe to those in America, it's we've taken a little more time to get accustomed to bitter as a taste and not something that's just like poison. So I love a Negroni. It's stirred also over a big cube. It's just delicious. It's like herbaceous and bitter, but still bright, really good to have before dinner and has also spawned a lot of cocktail variations too. So those would be my three, three and a half. So let's say people that listen to this podcast say, yeah, I know all about that. Although I doubt they know the Negroni as well as they do the other two but they want to impress somebody. What are the three that they ought to know? And not, yeah. not necessarily to be pretentious, but you know, also just to get a different taste for themselves. But when you go to the bartender and you say, I'd like a, you think, oh, this person is you know, yeah. on top well, of that's, their cocktails. Exactly. That's, that's also my, my thing, Michael, is like, I think cocktails shouldn't be pretentious. There's been too much pretension in the cocktail world for too long. And that's something that cocktails and color strives to go against, which is just like, it's colorful and fun and making drinks is fun and drinking drinks is fun. And it's not this like serious endeavor where if you don't have the right ingredient, you fail as a human, you know, <laughs> it's fun. Um, so all that being said, I would probably say a daiquiri, which to a lot of people, when I say a daiquiri, they're like, why on earth is that your favorite drink? Isn't that just like a slushy mess? That's that's what we've been told a daiquiri is by like resorts in the Caribbean. And that's just a lie. A true daiquiri is just rum, lime juice, and simple syrup. That's it. It is so beautiful, so refreshing, so yummy. And I think will really change your mind if you have sworn off rum forever because you had too many like frozen strawberry daiquiris or whatever. So if you go into a cocktail bar that you trust and order a daiquiri, I can only hope that they would give you what I described as the kind of traditional, more Cuban style of daiquiri. And I think it would like rock your world, rock mine. So um, if you buy this book, you can photo, take a photo of that page and say, this is how I want my daiquiri made. Thank you. Right. You absolutely could do that. You might piss someone off, but I would be happy if you did. <laughs> but they never fight in bars anyway. So we're, no, we're, that's, we're, we're good. past that. Yeah. yeah. So drink number two. My second choice would probably be a Paloma, which is a tequila cocktail that's not a margarita. So I feel like a lot of people only know margaritas as a go-to tequila classic. And I love a Paloma, it's, which is also pretty simple. It's, it's tequila, usually a Blanco tequila, which is not aged, lime juice, grapefruit juice or grapefruit soda, um, some seltzer if you're not doing the grapefruit soda, a little bit of sugar. That's it. It is so refreshing, bubbly, a little bit bitter from the grapefruit, lets the tequila do its work. It's, it's just, it's awesome. I love drinking Palomas 
anytime I would drink a margarita, you know? <laughs> mm. Number three. Okay. This one might be a little bit more out there. Uh, it's called a last word. Uh, say, it say, is, that, say that one more it's time. Called, <laughs> it's called a last word. Last word. Last word. Uh, it's a prohibition era uh, cocktail made of equal parts gin, lime juice, green chartreuse, and maraschino liqueur. Green chartreuse uh, is French. It's an herbal liqueur. It's made by monks. Only monks know the secret recipe. Bartenders love this, this stuff, but it's also, it's so good. Uh, and then maraschino liqueur, which is a kind of like light cherry liqueur. So a last word is equal parts of those four things. It's a harmonious balance of it's light, it's bright, it, but it's herbal and it's fruity. And it just is really, really good. If you're a gin drinker, if you like gimlets, um, if you like things that taste a little bit more herbaceous, I would highly recommend it. So when I was putting together your bio, which we'll tape and then put on the front end of this conversation, I noted something you had written, which you said that you enjoy a lively debate about the appropriate garnish for mm -hmm. this last word drink. So let's hear this uh, lively debate about the garnish <laughs> for the last word. This makes me laugh so much because this is such a nerdy bartender thing that no one else cares. No one, no one else cares except for us super freaks. I think a last word does not need a garnish. A lot of people like putting a cherry in it, either on a pick or dropped straight into the glass, probably because of the maraschino liqueur, you know, echoing that cherry thing. It doesn't need it. I think it's a perfect drink on its own. And a cherry dropped in the bottom of the glass just ruins it for me. Maybe it's because, again, the slow drinker thing, by the time I get to the last third, all it is is just that kind of like soaked cherry juice that I don't want. That's not why I ordered it. I ordered it for all the other things. Get it out of here. Get the cherry out of here. Doesn't need it. Sometimes cocktails don't need a garnish. And that's okay. I've had after fights. This is my fight that I have in a bar with people. <laughs> You know, it's funny because I always think of those cherries when I was like studying for my bar mitzvah period. And I would go to the different bar mitzvahs and there would always be like a slow gin fizz or some drink like that that had those cherries in it. And I remember as a kid, we used to go around and try to take the cherries because we liked the taste of mm -hmm. them, not the, not the drink. Am I right? Was it a slow gin fizz? It was some drink that was like frothy and well-known on the, at least on the bar mitzvah circuit that I traveled in in Great Neck. Yeah, I mean, a, a slow gin fizz is a drink, but were you not, were you drinking alcohol at, at on the bar mitzvah circuit? Uh, no, I would never admit <laughs> that. I can't believe you would ask me. For <laughs> so sorry, you're, you're the one who brought up bar mitzvahs, so I just have to say, I don't, well, I, so, I don't know a 13-year-old who enjoys a slow gin fizz personally, but so, they're on. So, Sammy Katz, you say... <laughs> You, you had your first real cocktail, and you're not going to tell us your age when you had that. So, you know, when was your first cocktail? If I'm sipping well, for the maraschino cherry, what was your first sip? My 21st birthday. No, uh, I read about this in the book, so, you know, sorry, Mom, I already apologized to her. I, you know, I had a fake ID. It is what it is. I grew up in the city. My first memory of like a really delicious cocktail and not just alcohol in a solo cup at a 
at a bad party was this bar uh, in New York City that doesn't exist anymore. It was called Jaybird. And it was just, I don't know why there was something about it that just lured me to it. My 20 year old self on winter break or whatever. I was like, I'm going to go be fancy and I'm going to try to get into Jaybird. And I talked my way in and uh, I wanted to order what I thought was kind of, I don't know, the most sophisticated sounding thing on the menu. And that to my 20 year old brain was something called the honey nut old fashioned, (laughs) which was delicious. It was the first time that I ever, I really ever remember having a cocktail that I could parse out the different flavors in a way that felt almost like enjoying a a dish, like a, a, like a meal, you know, where I, I could pick out the honey and the peanut butter and the, the whiskey and the bitters or whatever else it was. And, could identify each individual ingredient, but saw how it came together to make something bigger than the sum of its parts. And it just kind of like blew my mind. And I probably had too many of them, but yeah, it was, it was good. So that's, that's what I consider to be my first kind of like real well-made cocktail. <laughs> All right. So I want to turn to your original cocktails because a big chunk of the book is some wonderfully creative cocktails, you've got to process the Ratatouille method and the Mr. Potato Head theory, which I want you to talk about. But before we get to that, can you tell me what's up with these different glasses? I never could figure this out. Why a martini had to be in that sort of triangular glass Mm -hmm. and champagne had to be in the the flute. And I get it with wine, but I I don't get it with these. When I get a drink, I say, just get me in in a glass that's easy to hold. I don't want to hold them (laughs) glass <laughs> in the bar. Yeah, I get it. I understand. It. Right. So what's well, up with glasses, huh? Sammy Cats. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm with you on hating martini glasses, the V-shaped ones, yeah. because they're, they are spill city. Like, how are you supposed to keep the liquid in the glass when it's shaped like that? It doesn't make any sense to me. Especially um, after your fourth or fifth one, right? Like, forget it. Yeah. Uh, you don't stand a chance. No, I think a similar similar to how you described using different glasses for wine. I think for cocktails, it's the same way. And that um, depends on what you're drinking, right? If you are having a drink over ice, it needs to fit the ice. So that's not going to go in a coupe or anything with stemware. It's going to go in a rocks glass, which is called that because it's on the rocks. If you're having a drink that's tall, meaning uh, it comes in like a long Collins glass, usually has higher volume because it has soda in it, uh, something bubbly. So that's why you're going to use that because it just has more space to fit your your whole drink. Uh, If you're having a a cocktail that's served up, you hope that it's been made or you made it to the proper dilution point. So it doesn't need any more ice and therefore you're not going to serve it with ice. And the stem just helps you not warm the cocktail because you can hold it by the stem as opposed to touching the glass itself. Similar to wine. Um, That's why the use of stems. Huh. Yeah. See, I never I never knew that you were supposed to hold the stem. I just hold the the wine glass yeah. up in my hand. So I mean really, that's that's like the use of it is that your hand warms the liquid when it's touching it. So you hold the stem if you don't want that. But also I don't know, drink how you want. <laughs> so I've been embarrassing my family now for decades the way I've held my wine glass. I did who knew? That's what they've told me. They've told me that they're super embarrassed. <laughs> and you know my family, so that's, you know, probably true. I'm just kidding. They're very proud. <laughs> yeah. So, as I said, a lot of the book has 
original cocktails, and you've got two theories that you outlined, the ratatouille method and the Mr. Potato Head theory. So talk a little bit about that, and then Mm -hmm. what you describe as four-step process of dreaming it, planning it, trying it, and sharing it. So mm-hmm. let's let's talk through the process of the creation of original cocktails and your methods here. And then let's talk about the three that, again, like with the classics that we should know, what are the three that you like best of the book that you want to sort of put a dog air on the page? Yeah. Yeah. I mean, there are plenty of ways to make cocktails. So I'll just preface this by saying that this is just how I come up with cocktails. A lot of bartenders do it differently. Um, there's no right or wrong, wrong way to invent a drink. This is just kind of what I've discovered to be my favorite methods. And I, yes, do recognize that both of them are named after Pixar movies. One of them, the Mr. Potato Head Theory, I cannot take credit for. It is not mine. It was created by a bartender named Phil Ward uh, when he worked at Death & Co., which is a New York City, an acclaimed New York City bar. Basically, you swap out elements from an already established drink template, like what we were talking about before, a la a Mr. Potato Head doll. So if you have an old-fashioned template, maybe you swap out the whiskey for rum. Maybe then you take the simple syrup and put in honey instead. So that's kind of what that theory is, is you take something that's already established, already known it to be good, and just change out a couple of elements. So Mr. Potato Head. The second method that I like to use, which can be used in conjunction with the Mr. Potato Head, is what I call the Ratatouille method. Uh, one of my favorite movies, I'm not embarrassed to say. <laughs> I in, was inspired by, I don't know if you've seen it, Michael, but when Remy, the young rat chef, is trying to explain flavor pairings to his brother, who doesn't get why he can't just eat things, he has a strawberry in one paw and a piece of cheese in another, and tastes them separately and then puts them together in his mouth and it makes a whole new taste. I do that with drinks. <laughs> it's a focus on flavor combinations that I love uh, and just put them into liquid form. So blackberries and ginger, apples and honey, kiwi and strawberry, you know, you put them together, they're already known buds and you just make it into a drink and it's going to be going to be tasty. Mm-hmm. So those, so what those are, you... are the kind of methods that I like to use. So what are the three that you dreamed, planned, tried and shared? What are the three that, yeah. like, if we're, if we're taking three takeaways from Sammy Katz's original cocktail recipe book, which three would you have the reader dog ear first? Yeah, I mean, there are 25 in there, so you have a lot of variety to choose from. These are just kind of ones that uh, have stories for me, and I kind of hold a special place in my heart for those reasons, not necessarily um, because I like drinking them more than anything else but I do like drinking them. So the first one is probably the Blonde Ambition, which is the first original cocktail that's listed in the book. It was the first original cocktail that I ever had put on a menu, which for a cocktail bartender is a pretty big deal to get a drink on a bar menu. I was told by everybody that I worked with at the time that it had too many things in it and that it wasn't going to work. And so I just was an ambitious enough blonde to make it happen. So it is a Colin style drink, which just means that it's tall and topped with something bubbly. It's made of, ready? Gin, lime juice, cucumber, raspberry, yellow chartreuse, 
uh, Mara Montenegro and the topped off with Prosecco. That's so many things. That's so many things in a drink. But I think it really, I, it ends up coming together and make something really delicious. So blonde ambition, probably number one. My second, I think would be the Woman of Destiny, which is a drink that came out of my time working at Sweet Polly, which is a cocktail bar in Prospect Heights in Brooklyn, where I was the head bartender for several years. This drink kind of happened by accident because we at the bar accidentally got a case of creme de violette delivered instead of the thing that we actually needed. Creme de violette is a really strongly flavored violet flower liqueur that you really can't even use more than a quarter ounce of. <laughs> so it's a really bad thing to have a lot of. <laughs> um, and my old manager just handed me a bottle and was like, do something with it. So I figured it out and I made it happen. And I was interested in the combination of smoky mezcal and flowers. And I wanted to, to, to see what it was like. And it turned out delicious. So woman of destiny, because she was meant to be born. And then the last one is another kind of kooky story. Uh, <laughs> it's called the Velour Tracksuit. And I'm going to sound, I'm going to sound crazy, I know, but I actually thought of it in a dream. So I woke up like in the middle of the night because I'm a monster. I woke up and was just like a purple cocktail with velvet falernum called Velour Tracksuit. And I then had to make it happen because I was like, this drink came to me. So velvet falernum is a uh, topical liqueur. It's usually from the Caribbean. It's made from almonds and other spices. Pairs really well with rum. Uh, so this drink has white rum, velvet falernum. I need purple ingredients because I have to make it purple according to dream me. So I used ruby port, uh, which is a fortified wine from Portugal, creme de cassis, which is a blackcurrant liqueur, also purple and plays really well with the ruby port. Uh, and then I add a whole egg to it to make it silky. So it's a riff on a flip, which is an old school style of cocktail. So it's like a dessert cocktail. It's silky, it's creamy, it's uh, fruity, it's a little spicy. And I did it. I made the velour tracksuit happen. I had to drink like 12 raw eggs in order to figure it out, but I did it. <laughs> but so it's a, it's a good breakfast drink then, right? Because Absolutely. Breakfast, dessert, lunch. Instead of uh, over easy, you could just plunk your egg into In a flip. Of- yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yep. There you go. If you have a velour tracksuit for breakfast, please let me know. <laughs> <laughs> so. We're coming close to the end, but I wanted to say to the readers that the book has also at the end of it the essential tools and mixes that people who say, this sounds very cool, maybe I'll try making my own dream cocktails. So they have a list of a couple of very fundamental ingredients. So what would be the essentials that if I wanted to start making cocktails and compete with you um, – <laughs> I would need to get. Yeah. Um, For tools, I mean, you can probably find anything that you could use to make cocktails just in your kitchen. But if you wanted to get a basic set of bar tools, I would recommend getting a pair of shaker tins, um, which I like the uh, stainless steel ones, the metal ones. They come two different sizes. They fit together really well. And you can also use one as a stirring vessel if you need to. So you don't need to get another tool for that. A strainer which is just to hold back ice. Uh, Hawthorne strainer is the one with the coils. Uh, that one goes really well with the shaker tins. And then uh, what's called a jigger, which you use to measure 
your ingredients because we're working on a small scale, right? We're dealing with quarter ounces, half ounces. You can't really measure quarter ounce in, in a regular liquid measuring cup. So having, having a specific measuring tool like a jigger is really useful for that. OXO also makes a really nice mini measuring cup. So I'd recommend that too for home bartenders as well. You can get by with just those three things. Uh, then you can get fancier from there. And you say in the book that measuring is essential. That mm-hmm. if it calls for a quarter of a something of this or a half, that if you change a quarter to a half or a half to a quarter, it's a whole different drink. Yeah. Again, because making cocktails is just tiny cooking. We're just working on a small liquid scale. So because you're only dealing with three ounces of liquid at a time. If you do change one thing by a quarter ounce to a half an ounce, it will drastically change the impact for good or for for worse, you know? So it's helpful to use a measuring tool just so you're making consistent drinks every time rather than, than free pouring as it, as it were. So we're going to release this podcast on St. Patrick's day. That's, you know, one of the inspirations for having this conversation besides my loving this book as a tabletop book or as a real recipe book in your bar slash kitchen. But we are, for the fun of it, releasing it on St. Patrick's Day. So besides Guinness, if you want to walk into a bar and have something that you think is best appropriate on St. Patrick's Day, what would be the top, besides beer, what would be the top one or two or three drinks that a hipster like me would, <laughs> should be ordering. Uh, I mean, the Irish know how to make their whiskey. We talked about it a little bit, but Irish whiskey really is is good. It's it's really smooth. It's got a lot of good flavor to it. I know everybody pretty much knows Jameson, but I also like Powers Irish whiskey. Bushmills also makes good Irish whiskey. Recently, I uh, had. And a new Irish whiskey, relatively new Irish whiskey, a brand called JJ Corey, which has a woman at the helm, which always excites me. Uh, and I like supporting smaller brands too. So Irish whiskey, I think is, is where it's at. Certainly you could have a Guinness with, with a shot of, of Jameson on the side if you wanted to go that route. But I also, I love an Irish coffee. I, I think an Irish coffee is, is such a good daytime drink, which is, often when people choose to to drink on St. Patrick's Day anyway. So, yeah. If you're in New York, if you're in New York, I mean, Dead Rabbit, uh, the bar called Dead Rabbit makes the best Irish coffee I've ever had. Uh, For whatever reason, they just know what they're doing. It's so good. But yeah, that's what I would would go to on St. Patrick's Day. So in conclusion, you write in the book, and if all this book does is to make you smile, then we've done our job. And I want to say to you, Sammy Katz, thank you so much for writing this book because you did make me smile throughout this podcast and throughout the reading of the book. The book is called Cocktails in Color, A Spirited Guide to the Art and Joy of Drink Making, available where all good books are sold. So thank you so much for, for joining us today on that. Thank set. you so much, Michael. It was really this was so much fun. Thanks. Thanks for having me on. That Said is produced by Compro and the Museum of Public Relations. Theme music by Sam Post. Please let us know your thoughts by writing to us at thatsaidzeldin at gmail.com. Thanks so much for listening. For That Said, I'm Michael Zeldin.
Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba.